0: Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It's good to be with you in Central again. Um, And uh, what a time to be with Central after the excitement of the last couple of weeks. and, and, And last Sunday, watching my son standing, making a stupid pose, receiving a baton, which was really cool. And then, actually, just to make matters worse, it appeared, of course, afterwards, inevitably, on Facebook and Twitter. And it's there forever afterwards, which is just great. So, okay, it's such an exciting time. It's an incredible thing for us. And we're so glad about it. I'm nearly forty years in the ministry. Nobody ever gave me a building at any time. Any of the buildings I've worked in, we had to find the money to actually pay for. And 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 he and the team around him walks into a building. I mean, how is there any justice in that? Anyway, it's really good, and uh, we're looking forward to the next couple of months and getting moved in there. Okay, let's uh, let's read the, uh, the scriptures. This is Matthew chapter two. Um, as Dave's already said, we're kind of in the cusp of Christmas. That. Where Christmas kind of wanes and we move into Epiphany. And this is the story that takes us from Christmas to Epiphany. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And the Lord will bless his truth to our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, so happy new year, everybody. Okay, this is 2019. Just in case you hadn't noticed, this is the first Sunday that you've been together to worship as a community in the new year of 2019. I hope it's a brilliant year for you individually, as much as I hope it's an incredible year for Central. And also, as it happens, it doesn't always happen like this. Because Epiphany is a date in the Christian diary, it's the 6th of January, but it just so happens this year that that date is also a Sunday. And so we are together to worship God on that date, which is Epiphany, which starts the third season of the Christian years. Dave's already said you've kind of been moving through that, starting with the time of waiting that we call Advent, you know, in which we reflect on the fact that we live in a world that we cannot fix It's broken, and it needs God to step in and rescue us. And that was kind of our theme through that period of waiting. Then we came to Christmas, and the idea of arrival, God shows up as a human being. He literally enters the scene, and our mindset for those couple of weeks was, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. We worship and rejoice in the fact that God has come. The next season, the one we start today and that you're going to be thinking about for the next few weeks, is the season we call Epiphany, the season of Revelation. So we thought about waiting and then arrival and now it's Revelation. You see, the thing is this, if God arrived 2,000 years ago, born to the Virgin Mary In a stable in Bethlehem, if God arrived, who knew? Who knew? Bethlehem at that time was a village the size of Clock County Down today. Now, I know you've all never been to Clock. You've just driven through it on your way to Newcastle or the Mourns or something like that. But but here it is in all its glory. That is Clock. Okay, it's roughly the same size in terms of population as Bethlehem was when Jesus was born. Now I want you, if you possibly can for a moment, to imagine something. I want you to imagine the village of Clock without telephone lines, without Wi-Fi, without mobile phone cells, without television reception or radio reception. Or newspaper delivery or without decent roads to get to it or away from it. If you can imagine clock like that, that's pretty close to what Bethlehem was like 2,000 years ago. So, if a baby was born one night in a cow shed in clock, who knew? And if a farmer or two left their sheep in the fields on the lower slopes of the mountains of Mourne and made their way down to the cow shed to have a look at the new baby that was born, who knew? There was no Facebook on which to post selfies. There was no opportunity to read about it in the Belfast Telegraph the next day. There was no television, no radio. There was no way. So who knew? Now, in one sense, if all God actually wanted to do at the Incarnation was to come down to earth and have a look around, well, whether anyone ever knew or not would be of no consequence. But of course, that's not what the Incarnation was about. The whole purpose of the Incarnation was not for God to see us, but for us to see God. And because that is the case, it would be necessary, therefore, for God to tell everybody what he had just done. And so we come to season three, Epiphany. We come to that point in the story in which God begins to release for public view information about what it is that he's doing in incarnation. We have the revelation and manifestation of who exactly Jesus is because it wasn't immediately obvious. The baby born to Mary looked like every other baby born to anyone around about Bethlehem at that time 2,000 years ago. And so looking at that child and looking at his parents and looking at their home situation would never have suggested to you on the surface of things that God just entered the world that he created. So God had to set about revealing this and gradually over a period of time he lets the news out. So some shepherds show up. They get an announcement from some angels who come to them and tell them about what has happened and they arrive. They arrive. Now you might think to yourself, well, makes sense. I mean, probably not the most likely people you would think of to show up at the birth of the Son of God. But they were kind of close by in the fields around Bethlehem. So it kind of makes sense that they might hear about this and show up. But the next group who show up are mind-blowing by any standard. Matthew said, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. These people weren't near in any sense of the word, neither geographically, nationally, or religiously. In actual fact, we're pretty unsure about most of the details about their lives. We actually don't know where they came from. Maybe Arabia, maybe Syria, maybe any one of a dozen other places. We are not sure. We don't actually know what particular ethnic group they belong to. We don't really know what their religious practices or beliefs actually were. We don't know any of these things. In fact, we don't even know how many of them there are. Even though on the Christmas cards you sent a few weeks ago, there was that, you know, the three camels and the three guys on top and the star in the sky maybe a stable in the corner. That's only because there was three gifts. We actually don't know how many there were. In the early church, there was speculation that there were 12 of them. We don't know. But only one thing we do know. They were Gentiles. They were us. You and me. And you see what God is doing? Right from the get-go... God is saying that this Savior, this son born to this young girl in Bethlehem, this Savior is for everyone. No exceptions. It's not like that thing which has been going on for the last couple of weeks where because some of the online traders didn't have a brilliant Christmas, they're making loads of offers, okay? And to entice you to spend on their offers, they're offering things like free delivery, except that down the bottom of the page somewhere in small print, it says excludes Northern Ireland. And God was making it crystal clear by the arrival of these guys from wherever they came from, that that was not the case with what he was doing. This was for everyone, because these guys were Gentiles. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look to see how this news got out, the news of who Jesus really was. But you might be thinking, as you think about this first group, second group of people who show up. Uh, as part of the revelation. You know, how on earth did these people come by this information? How, How did they know what was happening in Bethlehem to travel all that distance to show up to see for themselves, to bring expensive gifts? How did they know? Well, here's the interesting thing. The story that we just read reveals to us the fact that they knew because God communicated to them And through them, the truth about his son in a language they could understand. It's such an important thing for us to grasp as a new church in the city of Belfast at this moment of time. That God is really comfortable talking to people in a language they can understand. I want to think about that for a moment or two. God speaks to and through the Magi in a language they can understand. The first thing he uses is stars. Stars, the magi were probably astrologers. Now, the moment I say that word, you immediately think of somebody like russell grant okay that's what comes to mind all right and and you think about all the nonsense and garbage and rubbish. He gets paid a small fortune to write in the newspapers and the magazines and so on and so forth. That's what you think about. Russell Grant, okay. What you actually should think about in terms of the context of their world is the fact that these people were actually much more like this guy. Brian Cox. Because these men were scholars. They were students of the stars and the planets. And the reason why that was was because they didn't have the same view of the universe that we do. We almost see the universe out there as a massive pile of dead matter, you know, in the rest of our galaxy and the billions of galaxies that are beyond that. And we're scratching around, bumping around, looking to see if we could find some life of some description someplace else. All the life's down here. Everything up there is dead. That was not the view of the universe that these guys had. Their culture was different. They believed that up there was as full of life as down here. And that the things that happened in this world were reflected in and influenced by what happened in the heavens. And so they studied the heavens because in the heavens they could partly figure out what was going on down here and get some idea of what might be coming up next. That doesn't sound much like science to you and me, but that was the science of their generation. That was the culture and the understanding of the universe in which they grew up, which made them ardent students of the skies. And as it turned out, they were able through this, they claimed to interpret the events that were going on in the world and to see about things that might happen in the future. And of those who did this in their generation, these magi were generally considered as the best experts available. So if God wanted to speak to them, what would he use to speak to them? He would speak to them in a language they could understand, so he speaks to them by stars. Where is the one they said when they came to Jerusalem, born king of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose? God speaks to them through the thing they spent their life studying. Now, we don't know what it was they saw. And it is the subject of endless speculation. Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it some unusual alignment of the planets? The answer is we don't actually know. The point is that something in the sky made a massive impression on them in his commentary on these verses, N.T. Wright tells a story of something that happened to him. He was lecturing at a conference or speaking at an event somewhere and he was picked up after the event by a taxi driver, taken out of the city into the country to wherever it was that he was staying. And when he left the environs of the city with its electric light and so on at night and came into the countryside where everything was dark, there was an incredibly bright light in the sky and he immediately assumed that there was a police helicopter or some other kind of helicopter up there with a massive searchlight shining down onto the ground. And so he said to the taxi driver, he said, I wonder what's wrong tonight that there's a helicopter up. And the taxi driver laughed and said to him, Sir, you're looking at Venus. That photograph was taken in July of this year. It shows the moon, which you will immediately recognize. And that phenomenally, bright-looking star beside it is Venus in the early evening sky. We don't know what it was that they saw, but it made a huge impression on them because they understood that this was something out of the ordinary, and whatever it was, it brought them to Jesus. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Stars don't move like that. How could that possibly be? Seems like a mythical element of the story. Let's just remember for a moment that the God who is communicating with these magi from the east is the selfsame God who by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night led his people in the wilderness for 40 years. God speaks to these people in a way they understood. Stars. He speaks to them by stars, but then as well as that, God speaks through gifts through gifts can you imagine what it was like for a moment for mary and joseph when these guys showed up at the house asking to see their son I mean, this is weird for us in our generation. The thing that we probably are most nervous about when we have a young baby—the age that Jesus was at this stage—is when the health visitor or the community midwife turns up. Okay, and you're sort of thinking, well, especially if it's your first child, oh, I wonder if I've done everything right. You know, I've got the nappy on right. You know, have I fed the child properly? Uh, am, I, am I holding the child correctly? Whenever I'm, and am I sleeping the child properly in the cot? And you've got all these fears that the midwife is going to discover you're a terrible parent, take your child away from. You. whenever the community midwife came to visit uh, us in our home uh, shortly after David was born um, and she came in and, and she had a look around and then she examined the child and then she looked at him and she said oh she said I see you've got a rashy baby my wife was really offended and she thought he's not a rashy baby his skin is beautiful but the community midwife didn't agree and, and that's probably the worst thing we've got to worry about but here was Mary these people were strangers in every, in every meaning of that word. They were educated and probably wealthy and there were far too many of them for comfort in the small house that she was with her husband and her newborn son in. This was a world away from anything she knew and yet these men were talking to her about what God was doing and what God would do through this child that she had. Last year at the beginning of the time whenever my grandchild Charlotte was so ill, and she was in intensive care in the Children's Hospital in the Royal Victoria Hospital, at the same time in intensive care there was a young boy who had been seriously injured in a road traffic accident and he came from the travelling community. And uh, when I say he came from the traveling community, everybody was aware of it because the whole traveling community was in the hospital every day. Like there were like, tens and dozens of these people, all apparently related to this child, I have no idea, massive family circle, they were always in the ward, standing in groups outside the hospital and so on, and with Christine and I going in and out of the hospital to visit Charlotte and to be there to support Esther and Phil, we we bumped into this travelling family every day. I had basically never really met travellers before at close quarters. And so this was quite an unusual experience and at times it was quite an th- almost threatening experience because there were always so many of them around the bed which was exactly beside where Charlotte was and they, while we were talking very quietly in hushed tones they were talking really loudly and, and, and going on and so on and amongst this family circle was an elderly woman I can't remember now if she was the grandmother or the great grandmother of the little boy who had been injured and she was an exceptionally devout woman You would never see her without her prayer beads in her hand. And every time she saw us, she stopped us to tell us how she was praying for Charlotte. And she started to tell us about what she thought the Lord was speaking into our circumstances. I can tell you that was a totally weird experience. Someone whose background, culture, outlook on life, everything so different from anything I had ever really encountered before. And yet here was this woman speaking to me about what the Lord was doing in our lives. That's what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph that night. What was the Lord saying by these strangers turning up? Certainly, on the one hand, there was the surprising thing of the width of the Lord's involvement. You know, that, that God was obviously interested in involving these guys in what he was doing. And that must have been quite a stretch for Mary and Joseph to come to terms with. But there was something else too. Because these guys did what everybody does when you go to a house where there's a new baby. They brought gifts. Gifts the like of which Mary and Joseph had never seen in all their lives and would probably never see again, and of the like of which they had never been given before. It says in Matthew 2, They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gifts they gave filled the room with an aroma, a beautiful aroma, and the glow of the gold. But here's the thing, these things were not rare in the culture and in the world of Joseph and Mary's day, but they were exceptionally expensive. They were not the gifts that ordinary children were receiving across Palestine that time. These were gifts only for a prince or a god. And that's really important because this is God communicating to and through the Magi in a language they and we can understand. The Lord had spoken to the Magi and they could understand what he had said and he allowed them to pass on what they had come to understand in a language that everybody else can understand, the language of gifts. We know now that gifts are one of the five love languages. They're one of the ways by which you can say to someone you love them and by which they can feel loved. And we know that and we understand that. And the text tells us about the posture of these magi when they came. On coming to the house it says they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Okay, but, but that could just look like something formal that they would do anyway. But then the fullness of what their bodily posture was saying is seen in the gifts. Because here's the thing. However wealthy these scholars were, the gifts they laid before this child cost them a substantial sum of money. And therefore these gifts said that the baby in that teenage mother's arms was someone completely extraordinary. You do not give gifts like this to a normal, ordinary child. God was speaking through the stars. God was speaking through the gifts. And God was speaking through dreams. It turns out that the star wasn't enough on its own to get the magi to the child. When they understood from what they saw that a king had been born in Judea, they made the assumption that that king would be born in Jerusalem. And so that is where they went. And their arrival caused a stir. The text says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. We're talking here about Herod the Great, the puppet king who by now had been about 35 years on the throne in Judea. And the best way that I could give you an idea of what Herod the Great was like is to tell you that Herod the Great was a bit like the crime boss George Cornelius from the series of Luther. I don't know if you've just watched series five, which is probably the most gruesome, darkest of the five series. And if you know anything about that series, you'll know about George Cornelius. Here he is, the crime boss And the reason why Herod the Great is a little bit like George Cornelius is because around both of these people, others had a habit of dying. And in the case of Herod the Great, those who died were people like members of his own family, religious leaders who he didn't particularly like, politicians, indeed anyone at all. One of the very first things Herod the Great did when he came to power in Judea was he put to death all the members of the Sanhedrin. So when he called people to let him know where the... The Messiah was going to be born. That wasn't the Sanhedrin who showed up. They didn't exist anymore. They'd already done away with them. That was an ad hoc group of people that had gathered together. That was the kind of person he was. He was the George Cornelius of his generation. So, the point is that by turning up in Jerusalem in this way... With news of a rival for the Jewish throne, the Magi signed someone, someone's death warrant. Either it would be their own, probably if there hadn't been so many of them, and if everybody hadn't seen them show up, he would have killed the Magi, because that would have got rid of any stories about alternative kings. Couldn't really do that anymore, so another alternative was to kill all the religious leaders who said that the child would be born in Bethlehem because he could wipe out all the talk about that if he did away with them. Or the third alternative, which was the one he eventually picked, was see if I can track the child down and kill him. And so that's what happens. The text shows what he did. When the Magi turn up he interviews them closely the text says the way that the text says that suggests what Herd actually did was he spoke to each of the Magi individually got them in one by one just to see if all their stories were the same when he got them in one by one he asked them when did you see the star because if he could get that information he could figure out what age the child was likely to be and then he said to them well I want you to go to Bethlehem with my blessing and worship the child and give gifts to him and then when you're on your way back home again, just pop into the palace for five minutes and let me know where he is. The text seems to suggest that there was an element of naivety in these scholars. They were university professors. They didn't know anything about real life, and they certainly didn't know anything about King Herod. Okay? So, so when Herod told them to come back and see him, they thought, well, that's okay. It's very kind of him, really. we might get a nice meal on the way home. And that's probably what what would have happened but for a dream. God speaks to them in a dream. As he does to Joseph, Jesus' dad, three times in the verses that follow this story in Matthew chapter 2. This was a generation where people expected dreams to be significant. That dreams were a way whereby you could hear from a deity You could learn things you didn't know. You could get direction in your lives. People believed in this. And actually, it turns out that in their generation, the most well-recognized people who were experts in the interpretation of dreams were, yes, you guessed it, the Magi. So they had a dream. And through the dream, whatever they saw in the dream, I don't know, but through the dream, they understood that they were to avoid Herod the Great and go home by another route. But what was the dream really saying? The dream was really saying that this child is so special that he had the protection of God in a unique way and that God was prepared to do whatever God had to do to ensure that he would be safe. And he did it in a way that people could understand. He gave the Magi a dream. And so begins the revelation of who Jesus really is, the season of epiphany. The story of the Magi is the crossing point between Christmas and the epiphany that will follow as God will gradually unfold and gradually reveal who this really is, born in the stable in Bethlehem. And this story, which begins that process of revelation, revealing who Jesus is, is a bit weird, perhaps, short on detail, but it leaves no one who heard the story, neither the Magi themselves nor the family who welcomed them into their their home with their young child. It leaves no one In any doubt that something significant has just taken place in the birth of this child, something which is of significance for the whole human race, because these people are not Jews, they're Gentiles. And God is talking to Gentiles in a way that Gentiles can understand. Something significant has started in our world. We live an epiphany faith. Isaiah says, see, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Something has started It has begun in Bethlehem, and the gradual progress of the revelation of what started in Bethlehem is going to spread throughout the world till the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise that God has made. That's what he has just started doing, and it's still going on in our world today, in your world today In your world, this week, the voice of God will speak in a language you can understand. You are living a present epiphany. God is still revealing, still unveiling the wonder of what it was that he did and continues to do through Jesus Christ and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And he's speaking to you about it all the time. And often he speaks to you about it in the strangest of people in the most weird of circumstances and in the most unpredictable ways but it's him all right i have a friend who i taught in bible college many years ago and he's now a businessman runs his own business and we meet occasionally just to catch up and to share what the lord has been doing in our lives and i really look forward to the times of the meeting i met him last friday the coffee shop in Antrim, and antram and We were catching up and we were just chatting about how things were in his life and what 2019 was going to mean for him after such a hugely successful year that he had in 2018 his business. And and, uh, we were just kind of shooting the breeze a bit and chatting about that. And he he said, you know, looking back on my time in Bible college, now obviously apart from my lectures that were truly incredible, he said, my time in Bible college nearly wrecked me. He said, it took me about two years to get over it before I ever really got back to some sort of meaningful living faith in Jesus Christ. I'm really glad Helen Warnock's not here today. But (laughs) he said, it took me about two years to get over it. He said, I can't really remember during that time God really speaking into my life. But yet he said, you know what? I'm sitting in business meetings every day of the week. I'm chatting with members of my staff. I'm in the car driving up here. And I hear God speaking to me all the time. You know, for many people, sometimes it's really difficult to sit down with the scriptures to study them. You come to service of worship like this and you don't hear anything. God doesn't really seem to be speaking into you to you, and yet, in all sorts of incredibly strange and weird and unexpected ways, in the ordinary, everyday things of your life, God is speaking into your life about what it is that He did and is continuing to do. Here's the incredible thing about the Magi in the city of Jerusalem, there were experts in the law who had given their lives to the study of the scriptures. They knew them back to front. When Herod needed to find out where did the prophets say that the Messiah of God would be born, they were able to answer that question right away. The Magi grew up miles from Jerusalem, in another culture, in another world. They studied the stars. Yet who was it heard God speak? And in whose life, having heard God speak... Did somebody get up and go in response to what they heard? The Pharisees and the scribes who told Herod where the Messiah would be born, stayed in Jerusalem, never went to sea. These scholars who studied the stars traveled hundreds of miles to lay expensive gifts at the cradle of a child they believed to have had revealed to them to be the Son of God. God speaks to us in a language we can understand. And there's a double challenge in that. And the double challenge is this. The first challenge is, are you listening to what God is saying? You don't want to be like the scribes and Pharisees. You want to be like the Magi. You want to be the people on the camels, traveling hundreds of miles to lay expensive gifts before Jesus Christ. And here's the other thing. If God can communicate to us in a language we can understand, are we as a church speaking to the culture of our generation in a language that that culture can understand? If God can do that, is that not what he would want us to do? Let's pray.